0: I'd like to I'd like to thank uh, everyone for all your condolences and uh, cards and uh, encouraging words. Um, Val and I and, and Caitlin would like to thank all of you for you know the support for uh, the passing of my, my father. We appreciate that. It's, it was a great comfort to the to our family. Thank thank you so much. Uh, before we begin today, I, I've had something, I'm not going to say I've been troubled by it, but I've, I've been thinking about it for a while now, and maybe you guys can help me. Uh, I, I was wondering, when, when we're at the, the wedding banquet in heaven, if I happen to be sitting at a table with Lot, would I be out of line if I asked him to pass the salt? Maybe you could email me or text me and uh, and, and let me know what you think about that. Well, maybe some of you can remember the 1963 comedy classic, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. It was in uh, 1963, and maybe some of you that aren't as seasoned as some of us might not remember that, but they did a remake of this in 2001, and it was called The, the Rat Race. And maybe some of you who, were born in, uh, who, were, who lived in the, the late 60s and early 70s like me have a hard time remembering anything for whatever reason. But it's a mad, mad, weird world. It starts some of the greatest names in in the history of the big screen. Names like Milton Berle, Buddy Hackett, Spencer Tracy, and Jonathan Winters, just to name a few. Considered one of the greatest comedies of all time, it was ranked at number 40 in the top 100 funniest films by the American Film Institute. Well, the madness starts when a crook named Smiler Grogan, who was played by Jimmy Durante, crashes his car somewhere along the, the California coast. He was mortally wounded, and it was characteristic of the, the film's sense of humor that he literally kicks a bucket when he dies. Smiler tells a group of motorists who stopped to help him about $350,000 that he has hidden in the Santa Rosita State Park under the Big W, as Jonathan Winters would say. Well, it's, uh, <coughs> the Big W was four palm trees in the park that formed this huge W. And uh, after failing to come up with a satisfactory way to, to split the money, if they found it, the so-called Good Samaritans begin racing each other to this park. Well, unbeknownst to them, Captain Culpepper, who is the chief of detectives of the Santa Rosita Police Department, who's been working the Grogan case for years and hopes to solve it and retire, he has the ever-watchful eyes of various police departments reporting back to him the whereabouts of this money-hungry bunch. And... After many mishaps, everyone reaches the park, and when the Big W is finally found and the money's dug up, Cole Pepper identifies himself and he convinces this group to turn themselves in. Well, suspicious about why Cole Pepper would let them go, the motorists follow him, and they notice he isn't returning to the police station. They chase him to this condemned building where the men corner him on a, a rickety fire escape. Well in the struggle, Cole Pepper drops the briefcase containing the money scattering it to the avaricious crowd of people in the street below. But while the film is very funny, its title seems so appropriate for our world today. In the movie, we see people causing an amazing trail of destruction in their wake. People withholding information, causing accidents, failing to report incidents, reckless driving, theft, greed, at least three cases of assault and battery and a scrupulous con man and a a spaced-out brother-in-law. Sounds a bit like our world today, doesn't it? We look around and we see things that we never dreamed would happen. Our world is upside down, and I think it's getting worse all the time. Upside down has become normal for most people, and I honestly don't know how much longer we continue in this condition. Isaiah writes in in chapter 5, verse 20, he tells us what the mind of an upside-down person might look like. Isaiah writes, What sorrow for those who say evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark, that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. What sorrow for, the, for those who are wise in their own eyes and think of themselves so clever. What sorrow for those who are heroes that drink and wine and boast about all the alcohol they can hold. They take bribes, they let the wicked go, and they punish the innocent. For they rejected the law of the Lord of heaven's armies, and they despise the word of God. See, Isaiah is writing about the past, but he could be writing about today. Friends, we live in a mad, 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 mad world. And I don't know about you, but I'm ready for, th- I'm ready for things to change. I want the old normal, not the, not the so-called new normal. I'm ready for the days when we could, we could shake hands and give somebody a hug. And I think you are too. Today, our, the anxiety level of our country is at, a, is at an all-time high. People are worried, living in fear, and wondering what the future holds. Now, as we come to our text this morning in John 16, I wonder if the apostles felt a little bit like we do today. See, Jesus is going to say the last few words to his 11 disciples, and their world is going to be turned upside down. What did the closest friends of Jesus do when they were worried and living in fear and had no idea what their future held? I think if we take the advice that Jesus gave to them, we can have peace in this mad, 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 mad world, and that's the title of this morning's message. We can have peace in this mad, 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 mad world. So turn with me, if you will, to John chapter sixteen, verses twenty-five to thirty-three. And as we turn in the Word of God, let's turn to the God of that Word in prayer, shall we? Father, it's our hope. That that you would be glorified by this message this morning. We come with great expectation, leaning on your promises and your faithfulness. Help us to toss off anything that would keep us from hearing what you have to say to us. Help us to fix our eyes on you and you only. We receive this word with all joy and ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to, to put it into faithful action and to proclaim your glory. May it give us a hope and a peace in this mad, 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 mad world. John 16, beginning in verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour was coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples says, Ah, now you're speaking plainly. You're not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things and don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each other to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Our story this morning takes place on Thursday of, of Passion Week. Remember, Jesus had entered uh, Jerusalem on, so- on Palm Sunday, and, uh, on, and on Monday he had he had cleaned the temple, but all, he turned over the, the tables of the money changers and chased out all the people who were, who, who, who were selling doves and, and, and pigeons for sacrifices. Tuesday was a day of conflict when uh, Jesus was teaching in in, in the synagogue, and the 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 uh, the religious leaders come in and try to try to trip him up, and try to get evidence to arrest him. These these stories take place in uh, Matthew chapter twenty one to twenty five. Well, Wednesday was 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 probably a day of rest. Uh, I believe the Bible doesn't tell us, but I believe he stayed with uh, his friends Lazarus and Martha and Mary in Bethany. And this was probably the day that that Judas. Uh, sold Jesus out. So uh, Wednesday was probably a day of rest. I imagine Jesus was, was, was praying on that day, not so much for himself, but he knew what his friends were going to be going through in a, in, in a short time. So he was probably, probably playing, praying for his buddies. But on Thursday, he met in the upper room with his disciples in order to reserve the Passover. And it was the night before was, he was to be crucified. This long, drawn-out talk that Jesus had with his apostles Thursday night of Passion Week Starting started in chapter 13. It goes all the way to chapter 16. He's made them all kinds of promises. He's given them all kinds of warnings and invites, advice. But they're starting to realize that he's talking about dying and, and leaving. And they were probably worried and full of fear. Right? While he's been with them, they've, they've had someone to love them. He's delivered them from every kind of problem and every, gave them everything they needed. While he was with them, he filled their lives with hope. But now he's leaving and he's he, He's dying. And if things couldn't get worse, he's told them, you're going to be persecuted the same way I'm being persecuted. You're going to be hated, rejected, and the people are going to arrest you. They're going to throw you out of synagogue, and then they're going to kill you, and they're going to think they're doing God's work. In other words, it ain't going to go too well for you, fellas. Perhaps people are, and perhaps people are going to hate you. Why? Well, because they hate me. Because you're not part of the world, and they resent those who are. They'll hate you because they, they don't know God and they're under the influence of Satan. And again, it sounds like a, a lot like our world today, doesn't it? Yeah, this is a pretty bleak moment for the disciples. Jesus is dying. He's leaving. And it's going to get far worse for them. So as the evening comes to a close, it's early Friday morning, the day of his crucifixion, and they're all headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. A final prayer of Jesus in the chapter 17, and then comes his arrest, his trial, and his execution. It's all coming to an end. The are mourning on the cross. And it's all coming to an end. And they're extremely distressed. And their hearts must have been deeply troubled. So as our Lord closes in verses 25 to 33, He offers them comfort. And, that comfort. and the comfort He offers are built on these three things. Faith, hope, and love. See, they don't know how they're going to survive without Christ. He's all they've known for these three years. But the Lord says to them in verse 33, take heart. Cheer up, cheer up, cheer up, be encouraged, brighten up. And Jesus tells us the same thing. Even though we're going to have all kinds of trouble in the world, take heart, cheer up, because I've overcome the world. Well, how can we do that? Well, because we're loved by God. We're in God's everlasting care. God has a promise for our future. We have love, we have faith, and we have hope. We're loved by God. We believe in God. And our hope is in God. That's all we need. See, this morning we're going to look at these three reasons and see why because of them we're able to cheer up and take courage. We can have peace in this mad, 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 mad world. And our first reason is we can have peace in this mad, 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 mad world is because we're loved by God. Look at verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you'll ask in my name, and I don't say to you that I'll ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. These things, see, these things mean all the things that he's been saying to them for the three years that he's been with them. It's all been about the Father. He's been revealing God to them. I and the Father are one. I do the Father's will. I only do what the Father tells me to do. But it was all in figures of speech, in parables, allegories. Jesus spoke about being the light. He spoke about being the living water. He spoke about his body as the temple. He spoke about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And now he's talking about dying, rising, and leaving. These 11 guys didn't know what to think. They couldn't understand everything because the, these things hadn't happened yet. So he couldn't fully explain. The cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the Holy Spirit. I mean, how could they understand? You know, I don't think it was just because these things hadn't happened yet. I think maybe the apostles were a bit like me. They were thick headed. You okay, dude? You're going like this. I think you got a bad crick or something? They, they were thick headed. And they had a hard time getting it. See, they were reluctant to believe that he would die and leave. Because he thought he was going to bring them the kingdom to this earth, right? In the Old Testament, if you remember, God had promised the nation of Israel, his chosen people, that he would establish an everlasting kingdom on earth. The Jewish people thought that Jesus was going to establish this kingdom. And, and I think the apostles probably had their own agenda in mind. Right? Where are his best friends. Where are his buddy. Boy, this is going to work out good for us. They didn't want him to die. They didn't want him to leave. See, this wasn't in their plan. And remember, too, that these guys had years and years of instruction in Judaism. And that added to these expectations. All that, but all that teaching didn't instruct them why Jesus had to suffer, die, and rise again. So they're not clear on a lot of things. Remember back in verse 12, Jesus said, I have many more things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. No, I, I can't go any further. Put ourselves in their situation. We have no New Testament. The cross hasn't happened yet. The resurrection hasn't happened. The Holy Spirit hasn't come. and We're trying to understand all these things Jesus is saying in light of what hasn't happened yet. But he says in verse 25, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Well, what hour is he talking about? Could it be after the resurrection when he met Cleopas and his unnamed buddy walking on the road to Emmaus? Maybe. Could it be 40 days after his resurrection and his, and, uh, and his ascension when he spoke to them about the kingdom of God? Maybe. But I think, and most commentators agree, the best explanation for the hour is coming is when the Holy Spirit is sent. See, we already know he's promised the Holy Spirit in chapters 14, 15, and 16. And an hour is coming in verse 26, it's called, in that day. In verse 23, it's called, in that day, the hour when the Holy Spirit comes. See, the Holy Spirit comes to take, res- take up residence in the life of a believer, to be a, a, a teacher. And the Holy Spirit inspires the writing of the New Testament. So now we have these 27 books that take out all the mystery and all the darkness out, out of it, and it makes everything light. In that day, verse 26 says, "He said, you will ask in my name... And I don't say that I will, re- I will request to the Father in your behalf. Well, what does that mean? Well, in that day, you'll be able to talk to the Father personally. You don't need me to come and, ha- and have, to, have to ask the Father for you. That's how their relationship has worked up until now. Whatever they needed, they went to Jesus. And we often see Jesus uh, praying to the Father and making their requests known to the Father. Look at verse 23. He's already said this. In that day, you won't be questioning me about anything. I won't be here, and you won't need to ask me. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you'll receive, that your joy may be made full. Now, when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll have direct access to the Father. And this is really, I think, was probably pretty stunning to the Jewish people, because, right, to the Jewish people, God was distant. You didn't even talk about God as your father. Maybe you talked to him about, about, like, talked to him about like, the father of the nation of Israel, but you didn't become intimate with God. And you certainly didn't go to God and say, Abba, Papa. But now Paul in, in Romans and Galatians says, when you go to God, say, Papa. You're going to have direct access to God. You don't, meet, you don't need me to go for you anymore. You can go. Right at the cross, you remember the veil was ripped from top to bottom? The Holy of Holies was was exposed. And God is saying, everybody has free access to me. And Jesus says, look, you don't have to ask me anymore. You can ask the Father in my name. What do you mean in my name? Well, this is how it would go. Father, I came because Jesus invited me to come. And we say, Abba, Father, Papa, Daddy. We speak words of, of loving affection. We have that privilege. Why? Well, according to verse 24, so that our joy may be made full. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't intercede the seed for us anymore, but we have direct access to God, and we can, we can ask for the desires of our heart. And if, his, and if it's his will for us, the Father will answer those prayers. Well, how can we be given such a privilege? Because God loves us. God loves us so much that we go to him and ask for anything according to his will and he'll give it to us. What an amazing truth. What an amazing truth. All the riches of heaven are ours. God wants to give us every good thing. Every good thing because of Jesus Christ. God loves the whole world in a general sense but he loves his own. Remember John 13 and 1 it says he loved them during his ministry and now he loved them to the very end. See, he loves us in a special way. This is family love. This is deep affection. This isn't some all-inclusive love of God, attribute of God. It means personal affection. We might say it this way. It's nice to know that God loves us, but how amazing is it to know that he actually likes us? He's fond of us. That blows my, that blows my mind. He wants to shower us with all the benefits and blessings of heaven. And he continually loves us with deep affection. He loves everybody in the world. John 3.16 says, uh, "John 3, says God so loved the world. But he has a, a special family affection for those of us who belong to him. He loves us like that, even though he knows everything about us. Right? You might get people to, to, to like you if they don't know everything about you. You don't tell them everything. But as soon as you start telling them everything, I think that group that group tends to get smaller and smaller. But with God, He loves us. And He knows absolutely everything about us. All the broken promises, all the complaining, all our anger, all our sin. And He likes us, and He has this strong, unending affection for us. And we say, Abba, Father, I come to you because Jesus sent me, and to ask you for what's on my heart if it brings you honor and glory. Now, how do we get this love? Verse 27 says, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me. So if you're here this morning and you're saying, how do I get God to love me like that? How do I get God to lavish his, his affection on me and to care for me and to pour out all the riches of heaven, even though I'm not everything I should be? How do I get that? Well, the answer is clear. It says, you have loved me. Jesus says, we love the Father the Father loves us. The Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If we love the Son that God loves, God loves us. By the way, that's what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? It doesn't mean to belong to some organization or some tradition or, or, or some religion. It, it means to love the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to love Him with a love that, that leads to obedience, service, and worship. Love His Son and we live in the riches of that love for our whole life. People may come in and out of our lives and love us and turn against us and and disappoint us, but we're, we're loved by one whose love will never stop and never fade. The second reason we can have peace in this mad, 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 mad world, because we have faith. We can have peace because we have faith. Look at verse 27 again. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and I've come into the world and now I'm leaving the world to go into the Father. And the disciples say, Ah, now you're speaking plainly, not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things and don't need to question anyone, anyone, anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered to them, Now, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you'll be scattered, each to his own home, and you'll leave me alone. Yet, I am not alone because the Father is with me. Verse 27 For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from heaven. That's so important, and I think we need to emphasize that. You have believed that I came from the Father. I've come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and I'm going to the Father. Right there, in these few simple sentences, we have the entire story of the incarnation. What do we believe? Well, we don't believe that Jesus was just a good teacher, that Jesus was a a religious man, that Jesus was a a wise spiritual leader. No, we believe that he came from the Father, that he's a member of the Trinity, that he's God who came into the world. And I'm going to do my work, and and, and then I'm going to leave the world and go back to the Father. In other words, we believe that that Jesus Christ is God who came down on human flesh, not born of, of, of Joseph and Mary, but conceived by Mary, by the Holy Spirit as the Son of God. He lived a perfect life. By the substitution, every death, he took our place. He rose physically from the grave and ascended back into heaven. This is the most simple and clear statement of the, of the purpose of Jesus Christ. It's the, it's the basis of what we believe. This is the plan of redemption. And this is what they finally understood and believed. They didn't believe Jesus was a rabbi, just a good teacher. Now they knew that he came from heaven, he's going back to heaven. Do you believe that? If we believe that and commit our life to God, if we believe that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh who came into this world to die as a sacrifice for our sin, to rise again and provide justification before God and ascend back, and ascended back into heaven and put our faith and trust in him as Savior, God becomes your eternal protector. And God will care for you forever and ever. You're his kid. What a love story. What a love story. I think a lot of us have heard justification as just as if I never sinned. But I think when we come to Jesus Christ and invite him into our lives, the Father sees us just as if we always believed, Not just as if we never sinned. And I like the response of verse 29. His disciples say, oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. Now you're talking. Now we get it. Wow. The plan was clear. You came, you provided for us, and when your ministry is done on earth, you're going back. See, they didn't want to yet acknowledge that his ministry here included death and resurrection, but they're beginning to have see with some clarity. They believe that he came from heaven and that if you make this conf- and, and they make this confession of verse 30, we know that you know all things. Well, if he knows all things, who is he? Who alone knows all things? God. See, this is a great confession. And how did they come to that conclusion? Well, they've been, with him to, they've been with him for three years. They knew he knew everything. He reads minds. Right? He knew what they were thinking. Right? Back in verse 19, it says, is this what you guys are talking about? That in a little while you won't see me, but later you will, you'll see me again? I know what you're thinking. See, he knew, he knew everything about everything. So his omniscience, his all-knowing, I think was pretty convincing, Right? We know that you know all things. You don't ask anybody anything. I mean, it, it took their whole life to realize that they were uninformed and they needed somebody to give them this information. Jesus never asked anybody for anything. He knew everything. He must be God. But this is why we believe you came from God. See, this is, a, this is the foundation of our Christian faith. Believing Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. They believed and they affirmed that belief. This is like the high point of the story, isn't it? Wow, wouldn't it be great if the evening closed that way? Wow, you guys believe. And then let's celebrate. Let's go have a party. But it doesn't close that way. In verse 31, Jesus says to them, do you now believe? Now, as I was preparing and studying for this, I thought about this. You know, I don't think Jesus is really questioning their faith here. I think he's affirming it. So now you believe. Finally, you get it. You understand it. It's like he did come down from heaven. He's going to do his work and go back to where he came from. See, they believed that he was God in the world. But that's not where the chapter ends. He says to them in verse 32, Behold, an hour is coming, and has already come, for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet, I am not alone, because the Father is with me. See, there's another hour coming when they run. When was that? Well, maybe just a few minutes after we said this. Right? They're on their way to the garden. Jesus is arrested and they run. Zechariah 13 and 7 says, Strike down the shepherd, and the sheep will flee, scatter. What happened? He just said, You're believing. But an hour is coming when you're, you're going to run in doubt and fear. Was this a false faith? Was this a weak faith? Maybe this was just some kind of emotional experience. No, I think it was weak faith. It was little faith. Like that man who said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Fill me up. Get this faith to maturity. See, it's very important that Jesus said this so that when when they did run, they would say, wow, this is exactly what he said we would do. Which again affirms his omniscience. And it also affirms the fact that they were true believers. And they were loved by the Father, even though their faith was weak. The Apostle Paul said, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Look, I think we'd all like to believe that our faith is fully mature, right? That no matter what trial comes, no matter what happens in our life, no matter what issue we have, our faith is mature enough to rest completely and confidently in God. See, but understand, these are very, very young people in Christ. They had a very young faith. And he says, Look, I'm telling you, you're going to run. You're going to run. He said to Peter, and Peter he said that to Peter. And Peter said, No, 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 no. I'll die with you, Lord. See, Peter thought he was a rock, and the rest of them were just pebbles. And they all started to run fast. Does this mean that their faith wasn't real? No. It just means that it was weak, it was immature. They did believe, and they believed in the right thing, but I think they overestimated the strength of their faith. And I think we should encourage young believers in the Lord that one of the most helpful things in their development, is don't overestimate the strength of your faith. So we think we can, understand, we, uh, we, we can withstand the wiles of the devil. That's pride. That's pride. Proverbs 16, uh, and, eight, uh, Proverbs 16 and 8 says, Pride goes before destruction, haughtiness before the fall. Haughtiness is arrogance. The word arrogant or arrogance is is used over 200 times in the NIV. And most of the time it it means a a behavior or attitude that's detestable to God. It's an an abomination to him. Vile, disgusting. And it's dangerous. It's a dangerous thing to underestimate the power of the spiritual world and to overestimate our our ability to withstand it. When Jesus told Peter that Satan was going to come after him and, that, and the others, he responded, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and death. Peter had a willing spirit, but he didn't know how weak his flesh was. See, but their faith was real and it was tested. And when it was tested, they ran. But by Sunday night, they were all back together and their faith literally was inflamed. And when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, they turned the world upside down. You see, there's a, there's a maturing process. But they believed, and because they believed, God kept them and God used them mightily when their faith was strengthened. And if you put your faith and trust in God, you have the promise that God will hold on to you even if your faith is weak. And the third reason we can have peace in this mad, 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 mad world is because we have hope. We can have peace because we have hope. Verse Verse 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. In the world you will have tribulation, take courage, I have overcome the world. That's hope. That's hope. As we look around the world uh, we say, geez, what's go- what? What the world is going on here? How could things get any worse? But he overcame the world. Past tense. It hasn't happened, it hasn't worked out in time yet is planned in eternity. You see, this is the ultimate victory. The world is going to persecute us. The world is going to want to kill Christians. But I've overcome the world. What does world mean? World doesn't mean the planet. It doesn't refer to the, the physical creation. It refers to all that opposes God. Right? Satan is the God of this world. James 4 4 tells us that the world is anything that has submitted to the rule of the, of the devil. See, we live in a world of evil. Evil dominates the world. The world is ruled by Satan. He's the ruler of the world, the prince of the power of the air. The power that now works in the sons of disobedience. That, that's a term for sinners. The world hates us. It's hostile toward us. The Apostle Paul acknowledged this later to the Christians in Thessalonica. It says, no one should be disturbed by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we've been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, we're destined for persecution. We're destined for affliction. And we shouldn't be surprised at that by Christians. All that's godly in this present age is going to suffer persecution. Peter tells, that, Peter tells us this in 1 Peter. He says, remember that your family, of believers all over the world are going, to, are going through the same kind of suffering that you are. See, we expect the world to persecute Christians because they persecuted Christ. Even kill Christians because they killed Christ. They hate us because they're not of the world and and they don't know God. So, in the face of all this, in the face of all this tribulation that these men are going through, how do they survive? How do these guys survive after all this going through? Triumphantly. They come through triumphantly. How do they get through? What do they hold on to? Well, our Lord says, take heart. Take courage. See, this isn't just some kind of a pep talk. This is a divine promise. This is a command. The disciples are distressed, to put it mildly. They're tr- mildly, they're troubled. They don't know how they're going to survive without Christ. He's all they've known for three years. And he tells them, cheer up. Cheer up. And he tells them three things that should bring them joy. One, that they're loved by God. Two, that two, you're in God's everlasting care. And three, God has a promise for your future. And that's his promise to us. We have love, we have faith, and we have hope. We're loved by God. We believe in God. We hope in God. That's all we need. To be loved by God, to be entrusted into God's eternal care, and to have him and have him promise us a glorious future. That's all we need. That's exactly what everybody needs. Why don't people run to Christ when, so they can have someone to, to love them? <coughs> Excuse me. Someone they can trust. Someone who's all-powerful. Someone who gives them a, a hope in the future. The one who controls the future. Why don't they run to him? This is my message to these men that I minister to. Why don't you run to them? This was my problem for years. The simple answer is we love, they love their sin. They love their sin. But those who come to him, he, he provides all they need. To know that you're loved by God. To know that you're cared for by God. We trust in him. We believe in him. He, uh, and he holds us and keeps us forever. And to know that he's our hope. That he's in control of all things in heaven, in the universe. That takes all the anxiety out of life. I have overcome sin. I've overcome Satan. I've overcome demons. I've overcome it all. He's triumphant. And his victory is our victory. 1 John 5 tells us, we have overcome us because of our faith in Christ. And we're united in Christ in his victory. Paul tells the Corinthians, we always triumph in Christ. See, it doesn't matter how the world is going, we win in the end. We win in the end. My beloved brother, Paul says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus. Do you want peace in your life? Tranquility in the midst of turmoil? Do you want joy in your life? To be able to face life no matter how difficult things get? Then we need to be in the arms of a loving Savior. A God who loves us. A God who's who we can trust for our, uh, our eternity our eternal destiny, who cares for us and holds on to us forever and ever, even through times of doubt. A God who not only has the power over the present, but has power over the future, and has already established the future, and we're part of that future. An inheritance, undefiled, laid away in heaven for us. Amen? If anyone here this morning wants to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to lead you in a little prayer. There's no magic words to this, to, this, to this prayer. It's just a simple way of, of uh, describing what's in your heart. If you would like to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you're listening online, repeat after me. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins, and I invite you to come into my heart in my life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.